<clears throat> Times right now are crazy and frightening. Gas prices are going up every day, it seems like. Food prices are going up every week, it seems like. The stock market goes up and down, seems like it depends on whatever Elon Musk says or does. And there are seven world, there are seven wars that are going on in the world. We know about the war in Ukraine, we know about the drug war in Mexico, but there's also civil wars that are occurring in the Congo, Nigeria, Sudan, uh, sorry, Sudan, not Sudan, that's a car, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. Times are scary. And we see that fear and that anxiety that people are going through right now in their lives. If you pay attention to the news, you've noticed that drug overdoses and suicides have all sharply risen in the two years since our COVID pandemic started. The first four or five months of the pandemic saw divorce rates start to decline. And a lot of people thought this is great. Families are together and couples are learning to work through their differences. And then after six months, those divorce rates sharply have inclined since then. And our passage today, which Shirley read for us, which was a little bit longer than most, so thank you, Shirley, shows some of that same fear, worry, and anxiety that the disciples were experiencing and the crowd following Jesus were experiencing. In our passage today, we have an interesting mix of a few things. We have a miracle that Jesus does, which are common. We've seen these miracles throughout the Gospel of John as we've gone through it. We see the first I am statement from Jesus. There are seven I am statements in the book. Seven miracles, seven I am statements. And there are seven long speeches or discourses that Jesus has. And we see one of those long discourses here. We have an interesting mix of all three together. So in our time together, we'll look at Jesus and his disciples, and then the crowd and the disciples, and the things they're each going through together. So let's look at Jesus and the disciples first, starting in verse 16. <clears throat> now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now it might be good to review a little bit of the geography of this area for us. The Sea of Capernaum was on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus and the disciples had been on the eastern side just that night before where they fed the 5,000 men, 10,000 people total. And they get on these boats, and it says that evening came in verse 16, and verse 17 says it has become dark. And the text says in verse 18, the sea, the lake, began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. You could literally translate it as the water was rising up. Because what often happened, the Sea of Galilee 
is located kind of in this little bowl, so water would come in off the Mediterranean Ocean from the west, and it would kind of whip down across this lake and then up and out the valley the other side. And there was this reputation for the Sea of Galilee getting these crazy winds where there, it would be kind of like white caps and foamy white water, though sea was so rough. And it's often, it's not just there. We see that maybe if you like to fish. I remember when I was seven or eight, going fishing with my dad. We used to go fishing all the time, and he didn't have one of those little bass boats that are like that far off the water. He had a boat where we could go on the lakes or go out in the ocean at times. Not very far, but we could still go in the ocean. So it was a pretty good sized boat. I remember we were going fishing with his friend Mike Robinson, I think, from work. And my dad and I, we back the boat down into the water, and Mike gets out, he grabs the boat, we launch the boat, my dad and I go park the trailer, and we're walking down, and Mike Robinson is standing on the dock holding the boat, and he's going like this, as the wind is whipping the boat up and down. And I remember being so scared and frightened that we're going out on this crazy lake. And my dad, who most of the time wouldn't do anything to put his son in harm way, not all the time, but most of the time. At this time, he said, it's going to be fine. We'll be okay. We'll be on the lake. I remember we get on this lake, and the water is just like this. And we're riding the waves and hitting the water and riding the waves. I remember every time we came down to hit the water, I thought that broke. That boat was just going to break in half. It was so severe. And when I read this picture, it kind of reminds me of that same experience I had on a lake in the middle of California. It wasn't a crazy place on the ocean or anyway. It was in the middle of California is where we lived. And see these disciples, they're on that boat trying to make their way across that lake. The books of Mark and Matthew tell us the time. It's probably between 3 and 6 a.m. So these disciples have spent the pre previous afternoon feeding all those people on the mountaintops. They're probably tired. They're on the lake. It's cold. It's wet. It's windy, and the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and 8 miles wide, which is a pretty good lake. And the text tells us they're 3 or 4 miles out. So they're in the middle of the lake. It's 6 miles to the north side. It's 6 miles to the south side of the lake, at least. It's probably 4 miles to each side. They're in the middle of the lake. It's dark. It's cold. It's windy. They probably can't even see land at this point if it's windy and cloudy. And I think we can appreciate the fact that the text says they were frightened. The message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible, says they were scared senseless, is how Eugene Peterson puts it. But Jesus shows up to them in the middle of that storm, and they accept Jesus into the boat, and the boat immediately arrives on land, and the waters are calmed. That's the storm that those disciples were in. And most of us in our lives, we find ourselves in storms. Maybe not on a lake, but in our own storms of life that we're going through and struggling through. And there's a few things I know about storms. One, they're going to happen in the Christian life. Storms are going to happen to us. Andy Andrews, who's a popular speaker and a writer, he has a statement. He says, everybody in the world, they're either in a crisis, going into a crisis, or coming out of a crisis, is a statement he likes to say. Maybe a little exaggerated, but I think we can kind of appreciate his, 
his statement, right? That storms are going to happen in life. That's one thing I know about storms. Another thing I know is that they're going to be scary. We're going to be in the middle of it and not be able to see land. We're not going to know what to do. We're going to be tired, cold, wet. And sometimes those storms happen to us because we're disobedient to God. Sometimes there are own storms that we kind of bring upon ourselves. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah finds himself in a storm because God says to go this way and he goes the opposite way. Sometimes we find ourselves in storms because of our own bad decisions. We can't control our finances and we end up filing for bankruptcy. We cheat on our spouse time and time again and she decides to divorce us. Things like that. But sometimes we go through storms even when we're obedient to God. See, in Mark, he gives a little extra detail than John. It's the same story in Mark as we read here in John. But Mark includes the detail that Jesus told these 12 disciples to get in the boat. And Jesus told them to go across the lake. They're in the middle of this storm because they've been obedient to Jesus. Kind of like the story of Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet. He did what God called him to do. He preached God's word to the people. He was obedient. He told them the messages God wanted to give them. But it says Jeremiah was killed, put inside of a log, and sawed in half by the people, even though he was obedient. So storms are going to happen. Storms are going to be scary. But storms will be fixed by Jesus. See, Jesus intercedes for his own people. Jesus protects his own people. There's a saying, nothing is thicker than blood. And Jesus' blood has been shed for us. And he is going to be there for us when we need him. And these disciples are learning that. Just as they were up on the mountainside in the previous part of this chapter, they're up on that green mountainside wondering how they're going to feed all these people, and Jesus provided for them. Now they're in the middle of this lake wondering how they're going to make it, and Jesus provides for them again and brings them to safety. J. Vernon McGee writes about this verse here. He has an interesting story. He got cancer in the 60s, back before they had a lot of the amazing treatments that we have now. But through God's grace and some good help from doctors, he overcame that cancer. And J. Vernon McGee writes about this, this verse. Jesus came to the disciples in the storm. And that is a time he comes to his own today. He makes himself more real to us in a time of trouble and sorrow. I don't know why he waits until midnight, J. Vernon McGee says, until the waves are rolling but perhaps that is the only time we will listen to him. When the storms of life are beating upon our little bark, our hearts are ready for his presence. If there's one thing I know is that Jesus shows up in our storms of life. He might not show up as soon as we want him, or he might not show up in the manner we hope him to, but he does show up during our storms. So that's Jesus and the disciples, this story here in 6, chapter 6. And then it moves and kind of changes the focus. John shifts and looks at the crowd. 
and Jesus, starting in verses 22 to verses 40. And I'm only going to select certain parts of this section to read to, to keep our time short today. And we see first that these people, the crowd, they're looking for Jesus. They're trying to find him. Starting in verse 22, it says the next day, so the disciples have made it to the other side during that night. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, and that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. That word Capernaum is always hard for me to enunciate, so I'll, I'll try my best or not to goof it up anymore. But See, these people are looking for Jesus. Now it's the next day Jesus had sent his disciples across the lake. Some of those people that Jesus fed on the mountainside east of the Sea of Galilee, some of them maybe went home, went back to their jobs. Some of them might have slept up there. We don't really know. But we do know they wake up the next morning. And while they had enjoyed bread and fish the night before for dinner, now they wake up the next morning. And it's breakfast time, right? They're ready for some toast. Pancakes. We don't know. They're hungry. They're looking for Jesus for their next meal. And it's not like us today where we often waste lots of food in our culture. Back then, you didn't let anything go to waste. You often kind of worked during the day. You bought your food and you ate and then you started over again. You ate every little bit. You didn't let any food go to waste. It's similar to if you've ever spent time with someone that's part of the greatest generation or lived through the depression, if you ever eat a meal with them, you notice they don't let anything ever go to waste. My grandma, who grew up in a poor part of Arkansas, I remember having breakfast with her a few times. She'd eat oatmeal. She's still alive, actually. I'm going to get to see her in two weeks. She would eat oatmeal and every little chunk of oatmeal she would scoop out of that bowl. I remember one morning we had breakfast with her and she ate toast with jelly she ate all the toast, and then she licked her finger, and she picked up every crumb and ate every crumb, right? That's how folks that were raised in that generation eat. And that's kind of like these people. They're always looking for any food they can get to provide for themselves. And that's the concern that compels these people to look for Jesus for their next meal. So they hop in these boats. Somehow they all get across the lake. And Capernaum was a, a small city, so it wouldn't have been hard to find Jesus. They all get in these boats. They're looking for Jesus, and they start this conversation with Jesus. And I think it's a good reminder for us that people in our culture today, they're looking for Jesus too. It's sometimes easy to be discouraged that people don't care about God or church, but there are people out there that are looking for God and looking for answers to the situations they're struggling with. I was talking to a guy that works at the Grant County Jail recently as a chaplain, and he told me it's never, how do you say it? He said it's always a, a good reminder that people are glad to talk with me about Jesus. When he goes to the jail, the guys are always glad to have somebody to talk to about God and Jesus. Some are Christians, some are not, 
but they're just glad to have someone there to have conversations with them. There's something called the He Gets Us campaign that has started this year where they're putting ads on TV and in certain places on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen these. They're kind of black and white ads with yellow text called the He Gets Us campaign. And it started as these commercials they're putting out there to engage with people that are struggling with anxiety, loneliness, depression, relationship issues. And they frame it in this way that Jesus understands everything you're going through. And there's a website where they can go and they can get connected to local churches. And the goal is to start them with conversations with local churches. And so I'd heard about this through our missionary church connections. I went through some of the trainings the past couple weeks and spent this time, and really, is this going to go anywhere or anything, right? But this week, Friday, Saturday, and today, there's been 13 people that they have sent us with their names, phone numbers, and email addresses that want to just share their prayer requests, saying, I was in a relationship for six years, and she broke up with me. I'm lost. I'm in a relationship with this guy that's always telling me I'm a loser. What am I supposed to do? I always feel lonely. Is this ever going to go away? Those type of conversations that these people have, and they're looking for someone to talk to. So I've been typing on this thing, you know, back and forth with them, and if, if that's something you would like to help me with, that would be a great help, and I can show you the training, and you can have these conversations with people through text message on the computer or through email. Right? But that's people. They're looking for Jesus and wanting to talk with Jesus. They're looking for answers to their struggles of anxiety, loneliness, and depression. And that's for us. We need to look for those people and make time for them. We need to be patient with them. They're going to ask us questions, and we're going to answer them perfectly. Then they're going to ask the same question again, and we've got to be patient and work with them. And we need to be present with them. They might want us to spend time with them doing things maybe we don't like to do. Maybe they like to play video games, and we're not a video game person, but we still go play video games with them. Maybe they, like, they don't like to talk by phone or in person, but they like texting. And some people don't really like texting, but you text them back and forth to talk to them. Being, you know, I'm not big on texting, but I have a guy that lives in Kansas I've known for almost 10 years. He's not a Christian. He doesn't really like to talk on the phone, but he's, he texts me often, so we text him back, and we keep that relationship. Maybe you have a friend that likes to play golf, and darn, you have to play golf with him, okay? I mean, sometimes you got to do what you got to do, right? But people are looking for Jesus, and we need to be present with them and be patient with them. So while these people have been looking for Jesus, they're also looking for something to do. When he offers them this bread of life, he offers them eternal life, he offers them food, he says, we'll never make them hungry again. The people respond by looking for something to do in order to get it. If we skip a few verses down to verses 27 through 29, this is where Jesus' speech starts. Verse 27, Jesus tells them, Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? 
Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So this is where this long kind of discourse or speech of Jesus starts. One of the seven that John includes. And notice that word work that's mentioned in verse 27, 28, and 29. The word work is mentioned in each of those. The people are asking, what work do we need to do? But Jesus describes a work that's already been done by God on their behalf. They don't need to work for this food that gives them eternal life. And their questions reveal the culture that they're set in. These people, they depended on daily work to get food, either to buy the food or they literally grew what they were about to eat. For those of you I know that like to garden, you get that. You work pretty hard for a month or two to start to grow that food that you get to eat a little later. And Jesus says that he has food that will sustain them forever. And the people think they need to work for it, but they don't. In that time, if you didn't work, you didn't eat. But Jesus is telling them the food he's going to give them is not something they have to work for. And he makes two points. He says that what he gives is eternal, not temporal. The food he gives is eternal, not temporal. I like how the NIV puts it in verse 27. It kind of breaks the, the wording down and causes us to slow down. It says, do not work for food that spoils, because Jesus' food lasts forever. There's no expiration date on Jesus' bread that he gives or food that he provides. It won't spoil. Jesus' food is eternal, not temporal. But second, what Jesus gives is accepted. It's not earned where it says in verse 28, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God, the people ask. And John puts it in a way that indicates they're thinking of a habit here. What do we have to do as a habit? What's this process we need to start? What do we need to start doing and keep doing? What's this continuous regular action we have to do to get this food? That's the Greek syntax that John uses here. But I like the NIV again that puts it this way. It says, what, was, what must we do to do the works God requires? And there are no works, right? In, in other words, words, the people are asking, what prayer do we need to pray and how often to get this food? How much do we need to give you, Jesus, and money? You know, what, what percentage of tithe do we need to give you? What animal do we need to sacrifice to get this food? But Jesus contradicts their thinking. They're asking what needs to be done, and he tells them it's about who you should believe in. And he tells them in verse 29, the work of God is that you believe in him who he has sent. The people were looking for salvation as a result of their own effort. But in verse 28, the people asked, what are those works, those plural things they need to do? But in verse 29, Jesus puts that singular work of God. There's not works you need to do. It's the work of God that you believe. And it's a good reminder for us that people are looking for the to-do list, right? Just as we've been taught in our whole lives. We're raised in a culture where, as kids, you know, 
eat your vegetables, then you get dessert, right? When you're in school, do your homework so you can pass the class and graduate high school or college. When you get a job, work hard, show up on time, then you can move up the corporate ladder. Once you're in a job, you know, go to college, then you can get a pay raise, whatever that might be. We're kind of taught to do things in order to get benefits. And that's fine. I'm not here to promote socialism or Marxism or anything like that. But that's the culture we live in. And when it comes to Jesus' works, even as Christians, we need reminders that our salvation isn't based on what we do, but it's based on who we believe in. And that's the message Jesus is trying to get across to these people in the crowd. And sometimes the church can be guilty of that too. Do this and you're a church member. Do this and you'll really be part of our church. And even I've sometimes caught myself saying things like, you know, if you really want to be part of our church, you need to be in a small group, I've said. And I think afterwards, that was so wrong. Why would I say things like that? That's not how it is. You believe in Jesus and that's it. You know, I was at lunch last year with someone from our church and he said, I'd like to become a member of your church. You got a list of do's and don'ts to be a member? I said, sure. It's a real short list, right? And shared that five second list with him, okay? Because it's based on who we believe in, not the list of do's and don'ts. And as part of this long discussion that Jesus has with them, he goes a little further to explain what he means that they don't have to do anything to get saved by describing the process of getting saved and the manner in which salvation comes. See, the people were learning from, they were looking for Jesus. They're looking for something to do. And in verses 35 through 40, he teaches them something new here. Starting in verse 35. He says, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So here we have the first of these I am statements. John includes seven of them in his gospel, these I am statements. And these I am statements each reveal something different about Jesus' person and his ministry on earth. And when he says, I am the bread of life, it links Jesus in the closest fashion with Christ being the sustenance, the nourishment that people need for spiritual life. And he tells them kind of three things, if I can summarize these six verses. He tells them, and we learn, that faith saves us and not our works because it's God's decision, if you notice here. Faith saves us and not our works because it's God's decision. In verse 37, he says, 
All that the Father gives me will come to me. We see God's divine election for people for eternal life, that God the Father decides and sends people to Jesus, that it's God's decision and not our works. Second, we learn that faith saves and not works because it's our approach to God, not our deeds for God. Up in verse 35, he says, He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And when it says that he who comes to me will not hunger and will not thirst, John puts Jesus' words in the strongest way to negate something or say something in a negative way. The strongest way you could put it in the Greek text. It's called an emphatic negation subjunctive. Okay? In other words, no way, no how, never, ever, never will you be hungry or thirsty again. And we know that faith saves not our works from this passage here because it's something that can't change. Verse 37, the last half, says, The one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And John puts Jesus' words in that same emphatic negation subjunctive, the strongest way to say no, never, not ever, without a doubt here. If someone comes to me, I will certainly, no way, no ever, not ever, reject them. I'll accept them. You forgot to put your tithe check in that week? It's okay with Jesus. You got mad and yelled at your wife or kids? It's okay, God forgives you. The pastor asked you to serve in a ministry and you said no? It's okay. You decided to stay home and watch church on TV instead of going in person? You're, it's okay. Bed, bedside Baptist, have we heard that term? We're not Baptists, so it's funny, but that's okay. <laughs> I've heard other people use that term, not me, of course. But those things, we don't do them, and they're okay. God's not going to cast us out because we forget to do a few things or we fail him. And notice, it's not just the promise that we won't be cast out. It's the promise that he won't reject us when we come. Whether black, white, good or bad, single or married, whatever it might be, taxpayer, unemployed, if we come to Jesus, he accepts us. If we come to him offering our belief in him, he won't reject us. In verse 39, he further emphasizes this. It says, This is the will of him who sent me, referring to the God the Father, to Jesus, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. This speaks of Jesus as resurrecting people in the end times. He's going to resurrect both believers and unbelievers. Here he's talking about believers that once we come to faith in him, he will re resurrect us and raise us up to be with him forever. And the point here is that once you're caught by Jesus, you'll never be lost again. A pastor I used to work for, he, he loved philosophy. He'd buy these philosophy books and give them to me and the youth pastor. I don't think we, un the youth pastor and I would both be like, you understand what this thing's saying? We'd say no. <laughs> but he loved to talk philosophy. And I remember one of his philosophy arguments he would have that actually made sense, I can understand. He would say, eternal life is not eternal if you can lose it, Christopher. 
you tell me, right? If Jesus offers eternal life, but then you fail him and lose that eternal life, then it's not actually eternal life, he would say. And that always made sense to me. Because ultimate assurance in life for our salvation comes when we place our life in God's hands. This assurance for us comes because we rest on Jesus' ability to hold on to us, not because of how tightly we can hold on to him. Those same hands that were pierced on the cross are the same hands that hold on to us and will never let go when we come to him. Max Licato in his book on grace, he has this chapter where he talks about child orphans and the orphan trains of a hundred years ago and these kids that would go to these houses and they never felt accepted and they always tried to run away and scared of rejection. And he ends that chapter saying these things. He says, to live as God's child is to know at this very instant that you are loved by your maker, not because you try to please him and succeed or fail to please him and apologize, but because he wants to be your father, nothing more. All your efforts to win his affection are unnecessary. All your fears of losing his affection are needless. You can no more make him want you than you can convince him to abandon you. The adoption is irreversible. You have a place at his table, he says. Jesus has got a hold of us when we place our faith in him and he won't let us go. And it's a crazy time for us to be alive in the world today. People that have no faith in God are wondering, what's going on? I thought we were becoming evolved and more intelligent and the world's going to slowly get better. And it only seems to be getting worse and worse. They're wondering, what's going on? Is the world going to end? These things are very contrary to what we've seen or what we thought would happen. And that gives us two responses as believers. When we recognize those people that we know and they're going through storms of life, whether they caused it or they didn't, doesn't matter, we need to be there with them. They're gonna have questions about God and Jesus. We need to be present with them and be patient with them during their storms. But two, as we wrap up our time together, for us personally, we need reminders that our salvation is not based on works. Salvation is assurance to us, should be something that gives us security, that God's got a hold of us, that we're within his fence, and Jesus isn't going to let anybody come in and grab us and take us away. And that's the offer that we share with people that are going through that storm, that when they place their faith in Jesus, he grabs them, he holds on to them, and he will show up during their storms of life. And that's the assurance that we enjoy, that we should also share and offer to others. Let's pray. God, thank you for these stories in John. I know sometimes they're common, but I hope you can give us fresh reminders of how we're supposed to apply them and live them out in May 2022. And God, we know that people are out there searching for answers struggling and I want to take time as part of our service to pray for those people that have been connected to our church those 13 people that reached out for help and prayer requests 
for Karen that's struggling with her depression, Cynthia that says she's always lonely, Carla that feels depressed, Aksa that had a bad breakup, Deanne who's struggling in her relationship right now, Susie that's wondering how to go about this family conflict she's in, Tyra who's in a, a difficult relationship, as well as Amy struggling and knowing how to navigate her relationship. Stephanie says she needs a place to stay. We pray for her. Teresa that's always lonely and wonders if it's ever going to go away. We pray for Joshua that was in a relationship for six years and ended, that you would be with him. For Ricky that feels empty in life. David that's sad and has struggles with his neighbors. And Devin that struggles with depression and loneliness. God, we know there are people out there. They are learning that what you've been through is what they're going through. That Jesus, that you get them. That you understand what they're going through. And I pray for us as a church, you would help us to connect with those people, to love them, be with them during the storms of life, share the storms that we've been through, and talk with them and listen to their stories. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.